Hello, hello, and welcome to a new episode of Riptide Rewind, a Percy Jackson podcast. If you're new here, I'm Kaylin, your fellow Percy Jackson enthusiast and host of this podcast. I'm here today to talk about the Percy Jackson TV show and the newest episode that was technically released last week. This podcast is divided into four sections, an episode rewind, specific scene and mythology deep dive, some of my favorite parts of the episode, and of course, we have to cover the Easter eggs as well. Disclaimer, as always, if you have not seen the show or read the books yet, there will be spoilers, so I do suggest going back and reading the books or watching the show before listening to these episodes. Don't worry, I will still be here when you're done. And with that out of the way, let's deep dive into the newest episode of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief, I Become Supreme Lord of the Bathroom. So excited to be here and talk all things Percy Jackson today. There is a lot to get through regarding this extremely packed episode, so let's get into the rewind. We start out with Percy fading in and out of consciousness at one point when he is conscious. Well, not really fully conscious. He's like half conscious because he's like, where am I? Annabeth is standing over him with her arms crossed and says the best line in the history of first lines of an episode, you drool when you sleep. And then Percy fades out of consciousness again. Dare I say more? I don't think I need to. Once he comes back to full consciousness, Annabeth is gone and Grover is sitting next to Percy's bed in a chair. Percy is discouraged, especially when he sees the Minotaur horn, knowing that it was it actually all happened and his mom is supposedly dead. He doesn't want to talk to Grover even though Grover is trying to be there for him. It really shows that he doesn't really fully trust Grover in this moment, especially from not telling him everything at the beginning of their friendship. From here, Percy gets out of bed and leaves the room saying that since Grover brought him to camp for his dad, he is going to try to go find him. Which... Percy, sorry to break it to you, I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> As Percy leaves the big house and goes out onto the front porch, we catch our first glimpse of the big house, well, sort of the outside, as well as camp. The lake and the trees are very much the Pacific Northwest, and I can definitely tell that it's like Vancouver throughout a lot of the scenes throughout the episode, but the sights and the scene, the scenery and the scenes itself are just really beautiful. Anyway, we find a half-asleep Mr. D sitting in the sunroom with his very loud animal print t-shirt and his Diet Coke. There we have it. I feel as though in the show he's going to undertake a deeper character development that a lot more people can relate to more than just like a side character as comedic relief or just like just being there and the spotlight being more on like Percy or Annabeth which I really appreciated since I have a lot more respect for Grover as the books continue and I'm really excited to see what his development in the show will be. Overall, this is a good change and I hope that if they still give Grover his like searcher's license and pan storyline that they don't just give it to him to like give it to him that there's a little bit more depth into it because I would really like to see more of Grover's like character arc. Continuing on, Chiron takes Percy on a little tour of the camp, and can I just say, it is beautiful. It's so surreal, like, seeing camp for the first time after so many years of reading the books and just hyping up for this TV show, but they did an absolutely wonderful job bringing it to life. We see the strawberry fields, archery fields, um, just the fields in general, the amphitheater, the lake, and a beautiful waterfall, which I might add. It seems like all of these, like, activities meet in the middle, like the spokes of a wheel, uh, which is super cool, all meeting together with a statue that kind of looks like Hercules in the middle, uh, but overall, it's, it's really, it's really fascinating. We continue walking towards the woods, and as we walk, Chiron is talking to Percy, and we find out that it is disguised to the human eye, so no human can see the valley. Monsters can't enter it and the outside world can't touch it. Percy tells Chiron that he lost his pen and sword. Chiron immediately asks Percy to check his pocket, finding that the pen is there, saying that unless he gives it up to someone, it will always return to him. I love a good riptide introduction. We finally reach the cabins and see how they are all laid out in the woods, surrounded by, like, different paths connecting all of them. The ambiance and the setting is just gorgeous. 
We enter the Hermes cabin, which Chiron explains will be his home until his father claims him. Chiron makes an announcement, which Percy immediately tries to shut down but fails to do so. Percy then heads to the back of the cabin to find his stuff. He pulls out his blue candy, the last thing that Sally ever gave him. We then hear voices in the background, and Luke comes over to introduce himself. Feeling sympathetic towards Percy, Luke understands what Percy's going through, and it's the start of a friendship. Yay! Anyway, we then cut to Grover. It's dark out now, and Grover is walking past the mess hall and heads down into the woods, where we meet a tree dryad. We don't really know her name, but the costuming for this dryad is gorgeous. She is this tree with, like, roots and moss that are, like, expanded around her body. It's it's so pretty. The way that they did this was gorgeous. We don't know much about her, but I do hope that we get to see her again at some point. And hopefully she has a, I don't know, bigger impact, especially with Grover, since we see that they somehow or have some sort of relationship. I'd love to see a little bit more of that. Grover and the Dryad both head into a tunnel leading into another clearing with a council of cloven elders and other naiads, dryads, and satyrs surrounding the area. It then cuts to Mr. D and Chiron are that are playing a card game, which I don't know what card game it is, but I don't know. Love to know. And Grover comes in and interrupts them. Grover then explains that he believes he knows what happened to Sally, thinking that he she didn't actually die and Hades took her instead. Chiron explains that he knows this and they have chosen not to tell Percy. I saw this as like a really sweet moment for Grover to be concerned about this for Percy. Being the loyal friend that he is to Percy, he wants to make it up to him by trying to figure out what happened to his mom. It was really sweet, but it was also critical that they didn't tell Percy and they kept telling Grover to just be like, oh, just avoid him. Like, that's not that simple. <laughs> Continuing onward. We open up to the next dream sequence. Percy is sitting in the dark on sand with like a fire in front of him. Not quite sure where this is supposed to symbolize, but so far we see that every time we really get a dream scene, Percy is on some sort of sand. I am kind of assuming it's the underworld, but again, I have no idea. We hear that voice again that has been in past dream sequences and the, the sand around Percy quickly disappears into like a sinkhole and it's kind of like a sinkhole that like wakes him up. Um, with Percy now conscious in the Hermes cabin, Luke comes over and explains that all demigods have bad dreams and they are consistent no matter what. Some obviously are worse than others, but nonetheless, they are there. He goes on to explain that daydreaming, ADHD, and dyslexia are all normal, normal at camp, therefore challenging Percy's perspective on the fact that he is quote-unquote broken. It is a real plot turning point because we see that Percy is not alone in this and he, is, he will find a place here, which is super special, which we also then see later in the show that he is accepting and finally making new friends. And Luke says demigods pr process reality differently than humans do. Luke is then obviously introduced as the son of Hermes because Percy's like, oh, are you unclaimed? And Luke's like, no, I'm not. My father is Hermes. And just wanted to mention that like look on Luke's face during this moment. It was like really unreadable to me. I am able to see that he looks upset and then obviously like a little bit mad and then like completely shuts down any other conversation about it just saying that it, it doesn't matter. I mean, I know why, but it was really hard to read him in this scene. Percy seems a little disappointed that yet someone else is claimed and his father still wants nothing to do with him. He feels neglected and ignored. Luke also then goes on to explain that it's better not to question or even try to understand what the gods are thinking or even doing instead of just focus on what camp has to offer. Glory. Luke goes on to tell Percy that demigods have always fought for glory, known as Kleos. Stuff that basically attaches itself to your name, makes it bigger, more important. People listen closely when you talk, fight harder to be your friend, and so forth. And then we meet the beautiful, stunning, and incredible Dior Gajan, who in the show plays Clarice LaRue. Nonetheless, it is Dior. She has entered the chat. She accidentally runs into Percy. Wow. 
he is talking to Luke and then turns around and shoves him so he falls on his butt. Very Clarice. Luke tries to tell her to knock it off and Clarice comes back with if he wants attention, meaning Percy, he better be ready for when it comes. Basically threatening and trying to scare Percy. She leaves and Percy asks Luke why they don't mess with him. Chris Rodriguez responds with the fact that Luke is the strongest swordsman at camp. Percy then inquires that they leave Luke alone because of glory. So now he's starting to understand that if he gets glory, people, meaning bullies, will leave him alone. His dad might see him and may claim him. So to him, it's like a win-win situation. Then training montage. We start out in the archery fields where Luke says the best place to start and find glory are feats of skill. Obviously, if you have not read the books, we know that Percy is probably the worst archer at Camp Half-Blood and that Camp Half-Blood has ever seen. So this is clearly not his skill. And he drives an arrow straight to literally nowhere. And everyone like ducks and like dodges and asks if he should try again, earning a quick response of no from all of the campers surrounding him. Then we move to the forges, where Percy sets fire to a pile of cloth, and and Luke quickly leads them away. We then open back up in the mess hall with Chris and Luke. Percy asks if there is a Greek god of disappointment, and they should ask him if he's missing a kid. I cracked up on this. It was, it was really funny. <laughs> also, quick pause. I'm actually really enjoying that Chris and Luke, like, friendship that we are getting right now. I think it's able to really set up, like, the rest of the season, the rest of the series itself, and even part of... I think it's able to set up the rest of the season and even, like, part of the series as well. It almost gives Chris more of a reason for this portrayal, and I understand what they're doing with it. It was really funny because he, meaning Chris, is just, like, there in scenes interjecting ever so often not even like a main character but not an extra he's just there i i found it really funny anyway they get up to burn their offerings luke explains that they burn parts of their food to the gods percy says they like the smell of burnt mac and cheese and chris just buds in with the fact that the gods love the smell of begging luke goes on to say you burn what you miss the most and really mean what you're about to say so that they listen. Which then gets Percy thinking, and the scene cuts to Percy sitting in the dark in the woods with what like looks like a coffee can, like a little fire in the coffee can, and his blue candy that he got from his mom. Oh my gosh, this scene was done so well. It's basically Percy trying to talk to his mom while burning his blue food like they would if they were trying to talk to the gods. I, a moment I do want to touch on later um, in my deep dive. Anyway, he is talking to his mom, saying that he thinks he actually has made some friends here at camp. His dad obviously is not at camp making Percy mad. He says he can ignore me, but he doesn't get to ignore you. The switch in dynamic that Percy is feeling here is so on point. The fact that Percy is mad at his father, but also wants to be noticed by him again is on point. After the scene concludes, Percy is walking around the back of the cabin and finds Clarice and her lackeys. We then head to the bathroom where Clarice stands back and watches her henchmen try and put he Percy's head into the toilet. The water is then seen as it drains from the toilet and explodes in the bathroom soaking Clarice and her siblings. Clarice, obviously pissed, runs from the bathroom after her siblings. Percy walks out of the stall, looking around at the damage, very dazed and confused, and the one and only Annabeth Chase is standing in the doorway, leaning up against the frame. What an entrance. The queen has arrived. Percy is like, I can explain. And Annabeth shoots back with, no, you can't. It's so them, and I love it. I am here for it. It has started, it has started people. Baby Percybeth right here. Percy then is like, I know you. And Annabeth just denies it. She was obviously in the infirmary, though. She introduces herself, and Percy is like, Are you stalking me, Annabeth? And she's like, Yes. A girl has no people skills, but she she will work on that. <laughs> Annabeth then goes to explain that she's been watching Percy for something like this to happen, because she wants him on her team for Capture the Flag. But I think it's a little more than just Capture the Flag. Scene cuts 
to daytime again, and Percy and Luke are walking through the training fields, where campers are obviously getting ready for capture the flag. Through Luke, we immediately learn a little bit more about Annabeth. She is the head counselor of the Athena cabin, has led their team three straight wins in capture the flag, and that she is always, and I mean always, six steps ahead of everyone else. Also, can I mention that she looks so tiny in this scene? Annabeth is just like over in another field commanding people as she does, and she looks so small and young compared to everyone else. I know she's like 12, 13 years old, but she, there's so much responsibility on this girl's shoulders. Love her. Luke asks Percy to give her a break. Luke asks Percy to give her a break, and Percy's like, whose side are you on? Luke responds with, hers, always. She's my little sister. We need to stop here for a second. So, as someone who has obviously read the books, Annabeth has a slight, maybe not so slight, crush on Luke when she is in this book, So the Lightning Thief. Big, big, big spoiler warning if you haven't obviously read the books. Um, I don't think you'd be listening to this if you haven't. But the betrayal that Luke does for everyone, like, at the end of the book, has such a huge impact on her. Now, that being said, in The Last Olympian, when Luke is dying... He asks if she has ever loved him. He doesn't specify if this is romantic or not, but the age gap is really weird and gross. I just choose not to think about that. She responds with, I loved you like a brother, Luke. Now, I really hope that they keep this brother-sister dynamic instead of pushing like the romantic side of it, especially for Luke and especially towards the end of the series, like as she's growing up and as he is as well, since he is in his 20s in the last book. I really hope that they keep this out and just keep the brother-sister dynamic and, like, love you like a sibling kind of relationship. So far, it seems that way, but I really hope that they don't lean in the other direction. I hope this is one thing that Rick and everybody else does fix for this TV show. In hopes for future seasons that they leave it this way. I would greatly appreciate it. Okay, rant over. Percy is confused on what per Luke means by sister, since they don't have the same godly parent or just parents in general. And we get some backstory pretty early on about Luke, Talia, and Annabeth. Luke explains that he was on the road before camp with Talia, daughter of Zeus. Uh, we also get more information about the pact of the big three in the show they call the like the kids of the big three forbidden kids uh which i actually thought was a good ad luke explains that a long time ago zeus poseidon and hades created a pact because their children were being becoming too powerful held for a long time till zeus went flying off the handle and fathered talia forbidden kids attract a lot of monsters and just a lot of trouble in general Luke and Talia found Annabeth in an alley and took her in. Talia obviously didn't make it, but both Annabeth and Luke have been at camp ever since. And Luke, oh Luke, he says, and we've been family ever since. Dude, do you know what you're about to do to this young girl? Break her family, tear it into pieces. Man, it's going to be an emotional roller coaster. Who am I kidding? It already has been. <laughs> Percy then cuts in and says that Annabeth has been watching him since he got here. Annabeth apparently does this to all newbies because Chiron promised a demigod would turn up and have a quest that she could go on and that he could not even prevent. Percy asks Luke if she could knock it off and per Luke follows up with, he could, but what if she's right? Never bet against Annabeth. Then a conch blows and Chiron announces it's time for war. Not really, it's just time for Capture the Flag, which is equally ter terrifying for a young, oblivious, confused-as-heck Percy Jackson. Then we get a beautiful shot coming up in, like, over a waterfall and river that divides the two teams as Chiron explains the rules of the game. It's, it looks gorgeous, with the river and the teams on each side, Chiron and a satyr, like, standing on the rock that, like, is kind of in the middle of both teams, the trees, the sun... The freaking river turned waterfall. I think I've already mentioned that, but it was stunning. I have no words. Oh, camp capture the flag where only rules are no killing and no maiming. Sounds fun. Count me in. Anyway, Clarice is on the red team holding her electric spear, of course. 
Percy, Luke, Chris, and Annabeth are all on the blue team. Percy is looking around, which is very different from all the people surrounding him, obviously tell, telling that he has never done this before. While everyone else is like looking forward to the opposing team, he's just looking around. And Chiron mentions that all magical items that are possessed are allowed, and Percy looks down at his pen. Percy, again, is very confused. I think that's just the whole premise of this entire episode, is just him being confused. People don't know how to fill him in about anything. He doesn't even know what his job is, and is like, maybe I won't even need a sword. Cue battle war cries. Then he thinks twice about that previous statement, and is like, yeah, I think I'm gonna need a sword. And then our Queen Annabeth, who keeps gracing us with her presence, of course, has a plan. See, and this girl needs confirmation from Luke that he knows what he is doing, which I find kind of funny. <laughs> anyway, she says to Luke before he walks away, does today feel like a winning kind of day to you? Which is technically like the first conversation we really see between these two characters in the show, uh, which is really cool. He just responds with, see you on the other side, then leads his group out. Percy is just there and so overwhelmed and again, so confused on what's happening. He tries to follow Luke and Annabeth says, not you, sunshine, you're with me. Oh my god. First of all, the nicknames, they have started people. The nicknames have started. The dynamic between these two is so good. Leah and Walker really did a fantastic job bringing it to life. They walk in the opposite direction of everyone else. Annabeth in front, Percy behind, they are walking down a path, and as Percy is adjusting his arm, like, I think it was like his sword or his shield or whatnot, he trips and falls on his face, which is absolutely hilarious, and the way that Annabeth just stands there, doesn't say anything, just expecting him to get up and keep walking, makes the scene so much better. I think I read somewhere that this was improvised, I don't know if that's, like, correct, but if it was... They did such a good job with it. He's like, I'm fine, thanks for asking. I really appreciate you just standing there silently. It's so them. And again, their dynamic is so good throughout. It just has continued to grow. He trips and he gets up. Also, I wanted to mention, he does this all with his helmet on so he can barely see what is happening. And then he takes it off as they continue walking. And the helmet hair is spot on. Annabeth's face, not amused. Her entire body language throughout the scene, so good. He tries to explain to Annabeth that he really needs this game to go well so his dad can notice him. He's like, yeah, I know you're better than me, but he needs it to just go well. They stop. Annabeth turns to face him, silent for like a minute, and then she fixes his armor. The strap is out of place and she fixes it for him. I have more to say on that later. Baby Percival. Oh my god, guys. It's... It started. Then the conch blows, and Annabeth disappears under her invisibility cap, leaving Percy, like, again, dazed and confused, doesn't know what to do. She reappears, clarifying that it's a gift from her mom, and she's like, you'll do great, and disappears again. So, no context on what's going on. Percy is left again with no idea what he's supposed to do. He's like, do great, do what great? We cut to a fight between the two sides, red and blue team. Luke and Chris are fighting one group of the red team. The red team surrenders, and Luke and Chris are going after the flag. Chris thinks Luke is crazy, since Clarice hunts in those parts of the woods, at least for the first few hours of the game, but Luke quickly counters with the fact that Annabeth has a plan and Percy is on it. Chris, skeptical, but Luke reassures him that Percy will be ready when the time comes. And we cut back to one of my favorite scenes and top moments of the show so far of Percy being Percy. He is flossing while standing at the edge of the cliff in the clearing Annabeth brought him to. Then he's peeing and then he's petting a lizard. The smile on his face. Oh, so good. I love those scenes in the movies where like the one character is just waiting for something to happen but has no idea what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. They're the best. The smile on Walker's face, well, Percy's face, when he pets the lizard is priceless. I loved it. He is then lying on the log, picking at a leaf as he looks up at the sky. While this is happening, we see a few red helmets sneaking up around him to surround Percy. It's Clarice and her siblings catching Percy off guard. He tries to explain that the flag is not with him, but Clarice delivers the most 
iconic line of the episode. Glory's fine. Revenge is more fun. So good. So good. Round of applause. Love it. Percy is then like, um, no maiming and killing is like the one rule. Please don't hurt me. And Clarice responds with, oh man, I guess I'll lose my dessert privileges. Whoops. Battle scene. Clarice and her siblings attack Percy, sending him running. And then after him, they end up on the beach. And somehow during the fight, Clarice's spear gets caught into Percy's shield. And when he is thrown to the ground, it sends half her spear with him. The scream that comes out of Clarice's mouth during this scene is horrifying. Don't want to be on her bad side. She comes over and lifts, lifts Percy by his armor, but the conch is blown again, signaling the end of the game as Chris and Luke bring the flag down to the beach. Clarice lets him go and runs off with her siblings. Percy, completely exhausted, falls to the ground, and we hear Annabeth's voice before she emerges from her cap. And uh, Percy is like, you have been here the whole freaking time. She's like, yeah. Then he asks, and you didn't step in to help? And she was like, yeah, duh. And Beth Love, you really need to work on your people skills, but it's all right. (laughs) All she has to do is help him up, and then she shoves him in the water. Like the true love of your life would do. Percy is furious and very angry now, drawing the attention of nearby campers as he yells what is wrong with you to annabeth his cuts and bruises start to fade away and percy doesn't get it but annabeth obviously does above percy's head is a trident his father has finally claimed him your dad's calling annabeth poseidon Earthshaker, stormbringer percy jackson son of poseidon they cut out horses disrespect to blackjack they will be hearing from him anyways this scene is really good, very beautiful. And as Chiron is having like a voiceover moment, we see Percy as he walks into the Poseidon cabin alone. And it's looking a little rough in here. I do have one question. Where are the beds? Is Percy sleeping on the floor here? I, I don't see anything but sea life skeletons, a mural for Poseidon on the wall, and a salt water fountain in the middle. I see nothing on the floor. Well, maybe a bench. Just, just wondering, like, where, where are the beds? Where's he, where's, where's our boy sleeping? Wanted to point out during this, as we were getting the voiceover of Chiron, he says that Percy being a forbidden child is, he is singular amongst demigods. Sounds familiar, right? It's because Percy's mom, Sally, said something very similar before in the Minotaur fight. She said that he was singular. Interesting comparison. And then we cut to the big house, and Chiron is explaining to Percy that Poseidon and Zeus have been caught up in an argument about Zeus's master bolt. It has apparently been stolen, and Percy has been has been framed for it. He's like, "What the heck? I don't even know. Like, I didn't even know about all of this until a few days ago, and I'm trying to figure out. I'm still trying to figure it out. Like, over here, why are you blaming me?" So it is decided that Percy must go on this quest to get the master bolt. In one week, before the summer solstice or war will break out. So, you know, good to let him know now. I I guess better late than never. Give him some time to plan or no time at all. Poor kid doesn't even know, didn't even know he was a demigod a week ago. (laughs) Percy's, Percy's having a rough time. It is speculated that Hades stole the boat. So Percy must travel there, even though he wants nothing to do with it. He is fighting back to Chiron and Mr. D with the fact that Poseidon has ignored Percy his entire life, so why should he help him? Mr. D seems about ready to snap and turn him into a dolphin, and Mr. D says, you are his son. And when Percy comes back with, and Percy comes back with, I am Sally Jackson's son, chills. And more on that later, because it was so good. Grover then comes and interrupts before anything can get too heated or someone gets hurt and explains to Percy, despite Chiron and Mr. D telling him not to, that his mother is not dead. She is with Hades in the underworld, which is, oh, where he'd be headed anyway. Percy, with a newfound purpose, asks, when do we leave? And that, my friends, is the end of the episode. Wow, that was like a lot of information that was just unpacked. I think like 
12 and a half pages worth of it on my outline. Um, before we get into some deep dives, I just wanted to mention the fact that we are now leaving camp after only a few days of being here and only one episode. I know it's really fast paced and I know some people didn't really like that, but I believe since there is so much information to get through, we can't obviously fit it all on screen and it's important to keep the new audiences engaged and guessing on what's going to happen next. So I really do think it serves its purpose. Personally, can't wait for the quest to get started and see more of our trio um, together on screen. I absolutely loved this episode so much. Being a Camp Halfwood for the first time and seeing all of my favorite characters like come to life was really surreal. I feel like I have said this a lot, but it's so true. There's so many scenes throughout this episode that I really wanted to deep dive into, but here are my top five moments. Starting off strong with the battle training montage, well, sort of montage, towards the beginning of the episode. Okay, so I saw this scene as like, really cool little add-in to show a few things that Percy has been training slash trying, but not being very overwhelming to the audience. I feel like in the book we kind of get glimpses at all of this, but it's like not explicitly shown, and I really liked that they did this here. We go through the archery fields and then the forges, so not a lot, but a lot of information is gained about Percy throughout this, and even camp. We obviously see that Percy is no good at archery, which I am really glad that they included here because I remember in the books that we get a mention of it and it wasn't exactly like him trying archery, but it was definitely a mention. It is canonically correct that Percy is just awful with a bow and it's fun to see it come on, like come onto screen. Percy shoots the arrow, rogue, and it's like, should I try again? And immediately everyone screams no. I think that is one of the things I love most about Percy, is that he is not good at everything, nor is he striving to be. I feel as though with a lot of main characters, with a lot of different books, they either seem too perfect or they strive for that perfection in everything. Percy, however, knows that he is good at what he he is good at and just he takes it for what it is and he likes it that way and um he is also aware of what he is not good at and acknowledges it he's so real and that's why i think so many people can relate to him as a character which is pretty cool moving forward we head to the forges where luke is ushering percy to like hammer some of the hot metal sorry i'm not a blacksmith so i'm very sorry if i'm saying these things wrong <laughs> The metal then goes flying and Luke quickly escorts Percy out of the forges. The way that they played this scene out was so funny. The way that Percy is literally being escorted through each of these was was hilarious. Percy kind of just like lost and dazed and confused and Luke being like the friend and older counselor he is is like leading him around which also like says something about how much he trusts Luke right away. He is completely blind to this new world and seeing someone else take control and help him with something is completely new to him. It shows that he is willing to trust someone like this to be his friend to help him obtain this glory that he wants. I think that is what is going to make this betrayal at the end so much worse in that way. Number two, Percy, when he burns food for his mom, it is such a beautiful scene and a complete disgrace to the gods at the same time to think that Percy believes that burning food for his mom, like Luke says, he will be able to talk to her. I think that is what makes this scene so heartbreaking is the fact that Luke says you burn what you miss the most and he's burning his blue food for his mom. But at the same time, it is kind of funny because it's like completely disrespectful to the gods. Um, but it, it's just really heartbreaking to see him struggle to accept his dad's side, yet he is making friends and has to talk and slash call his mom after the first few nights there. Uh, the way that he's just telling his mom all of the things that have happened so far and how he feels like he's slowly starting to enjoy it almost makes me remember um, what it was like whenever I would go away for the summer. I would call my parents on like night one or two and just feel great about being there, making new friends. It was so helpful. Like, it was so heartfelt and it was so familiar to me. I think that's what made that scene, like, really connect. It also makes me sad to see someone who is finally making friends and then is going to have to be betrayed terribly by this said friend slash friends. Because at this point in the story, not everyone is being nice to Percy as Luke and Chris are. 
Percy also seems so small in this portion of the episode with like the tree surrounding him and the lighting. He like looks like a little baby. Overall, I loved the scene and it did make me tear up a little bit seeing him and just him wanting to talk to his mom. Number three, I become Supreme Lord of the Bathroom. The literal episode title, this scene is everything. It is, oh, it's so good. Clarice talks to Percy about how every new kid like comes to camp and thinks that they're special and immediately asks Percy if he thinks he's special. And he's like, no. And without any words, Clarice just looks at both of her siblings. They grab him and like try to shove his head in the toilet. And the the power that Clarice like portrays here is just, it's impeccable. I think what I loved about this was the fact that, you know, Clarice was just watching it happen the way that Dior portrays Clarice in the show is so good. She gives Clarice more dimension so she isn't just 2D and she brings her to life so well. Also, continuing on, it is so her character to like not even touch him and have other people do it for her. Again, like with the power that she holds and it was, it was really cool. And the water features that we have here another really cool factor. I keep saying cold, but it's so true. We haven't really seen this like manipulation of the water before. Um, so this is like their first real sequence on like how this manipulation is shown in the show. The walls of the stall like break as the water is thrown onto the Aries kids, sending them flying back into the sinks. And the way that Clarice's siblings immediately flee from the bathroom and Clarice offers him a menacing look before running off after them. I think What's so funny about this scene is that Percy has absolutely no idea what is happening. He is just as shocked as everyone else, which is so in character of him, which I thought was pretty cool. And then we meet the queen herself for technically the first time because we haven't really been introduced to her. She's been around, but like we care people who've read the books know who she is, but everybody else doesn't. And I've just got to say the representation of both of these characters in this scene is so freaking good. The way Annabeth is on top of it knows exactly what she's doing and Percy is completely clueless. Don't get me wrong, I love the boy. He has his moments though. This is the first ever conversation, like back and forth conversation that we get between the two of them and Percy is conscious. We also, we find Annabeth leaning against the doorframe, so we really don't know how long she has been there or if she's used her invisibility cap, but it is so obvious that she knows something that he doesn't and that she's, she wasn't just watching him for Capture the Flag, especially to the people who obviously have read the books. She clearly knows that something is up, which is something I love so much about her character and the screenwriters knew what they were doing when Obviously, they wrote her character, meaning into, like, the show character we see today. And also, Leah just embodies her so well. I could talk about it for hours. Number four, the claiming scene. Oh my goodness. I don't know what I was expecting to happen, but the shots, the freaking music. I've listened to the soundtrack now for the show a lot lately, and the way that the music continues to build throughout the scene, and then, like, crescendoing when... There's like this wide shot of Percy in the water with a sign of Poseidon above his head and Annabeth is just on the beach looking like at him and then at the sign above him is just absolutely beautiful. Okay, going back to the beginning after like the fight when Annabeth appears and says, not bad hero, and Percy gets so mad at her for just standing there and not helping them. It's, it's so them. I love it. Again, kind of mirroring back to the beginning of the episode where they are in the bathroom, Annabeth is only giving Percy like one-worded answers with an occasional sentence. This really exhibits the fact that Annabeth really chooses what she wants to share and not all information needs to be distributed and given outright to people. It represents her character so well. It shows that she really thinks about these things and decides to wait them out and see if like she's right or in this case watch Percy and gather more information about him. She comes off as guarded and like a closed book as to not expose herself to people or places she doesn't want to be read or seen by. 
I found this to be, again, so on point with her character and how they use this throughout the episode lets her character then develop in later episodes when we see her spend more time um, with Percy and just spend more time with her in general. I think Percy does have a big impact on her. Anyway, Annabeth helps Percy up, says his name like she's going to say something else and then immediately pushes him to the water. She's like, I'm sorry, but I really don't think she means it. Um, Percy gets all wet and all of like his wounds begin to close as the, the trident appears above his head. It was beautiful. All of the elements that went into it, it was, it was a magnificent scene. And then five, the very end of the episode, we get a conversation between Grover, Percy, Chiron, Dionysus. And this was a very deep and like emotional scene to close out the episode. There is so much that happens throughout this portion of the episode. We finally learn more about Zeus's lightning bolt and how it has disappeared. And Percy, being now claimed, has brought even more reason onto Zeus to blame Poseidon for this theft. We can obviously see throughout that Percy absolutely wants nothing to do with this quest. At one point, I think he literally says, good luck finding like those three people, meaning people to take on the quest because it is not going to be me. He's not really believing any of this right now. This kid has gone through so much from losing his mother, finding out who his dad is, and finding out who he is as a person or demigod. He is really at a loss right now, and I think that's what makes this scene so emotional. He has a right to be angry at this moment. Percy doesn't know what is real and what isn't at this point. He's like, again, so at a loss. Throughout the entire scene, it's like his world is basically shattering. As Dionysus says, you are his son, meaning Poseidon. Percy immediately retorts with, I am Sally Jackson's son. You know, this really does express Percy's humanity, in a sense, throughout the book. And even the show, we see characters such as Luke introduce themselves, being like, oh yeah, my my godly parent is this. My It's just my godly parent, not mortal parent. And I believe that the fact that Percy is not really identifying and immediately okay with this change and finally figuring out who his father is and affects him in a way, his mom is his safe place. And it's quite obvious throughout the episode that he believes that. And he is denying the quest until Grover comes and tells him that his mom is actually alive and with Hades in the underworld. It is really special to see but also at the same time, what lengths is he willing to go to sacrifice anything or anyone to save his mom in this quest? Okay, in this episode of The Lightning Thief, we see a variety of mythical creatures. Here are just three of the most prominent ones. So first up is Satyr. We only know one Satyr at this point, Grover, in this show at the moment. And But there are places where we do get glimpses of others as well. Satyrs are the upper half of a man and the bottom half of a goat. They usually tend to live in like remote forests and hills and are seen chasing nymphs or drunk. This is not really the depiction we obviously see for most of these satyrs in the book. They are companions of the Greek god Dionysus and represent powers of nature. Satyrs are also believed to represent the brutish and like dark side of sexual desires. Overall, they're mischievous and hideous creatures based on the myths. Okay, next up is Centaur. Obviously, at the very beginning of the episode, we are introduced to Chiron, who is the centaur at Camp Half-Blood and Activities Director. The centaurs were depicted as creatures with upper half of a man and lower half of a horse. So obviously, there was definitely a theme in Greek mythology making these creatures um, half man, half animal. In later Greek myths, they were often represented drawing the chariot of the wine god Dionysus or bond to and ridden by the god Eros, who's the god of love. Chiron, who we see in the show, is a centaur that trained many of the heroes in the myths. He is the son of Kronos and a nymph, and he often appears in the legends with his grandson Peleus and his great-grandson Achilles. When Hercules accidentally shot him with a poisonous arrow, he renounced his immortality and was placed among the stars. And finally, we have dryads. Within this episode, we are introduced to a dryad that talks to Grover before they head into the tunnel to go to the Council of Cloven Elders. It is not explicitly said her name in the show, but I really do hope that she shows up again at some point during the season or the series.
Dryads are nymphs or nature spirits who live in trees and take form of beautiful women. They are originally the spirits of oak trees, but later the term was adapted to apply to all tree nymphs and not just oak trees. They lived in those places or trees as long as the trees were inhabitable. Okay, this episode had so many great scenes and interactions between all of the characters. Here are a few of my favorites. Starting off this section and just the episode in general off, very strong. We have you drill when you sleep. Dare I say more? I think it speaks for itself. Uh, the next one, Dionysus saying that he's Percy's father. I found this so funny. It was so unexpected. Like, I wasn't expecting Dionysus to say anything at all. It just cracked me up. And then Chiron has to come in, like, ruin it all. Overall, it was the best. I absolutely loved it. Next, Persassi. This whole episode was full of Persassi scenes, and I am here for it. Deal with it. I absolutely loved it. One of my favorites was when Percy and Annabeth were walking in the woods during Capture the Flag, and he, like, trips and falls on his face and kind of just, like, stays there. Annabeth just says nothing. So in character for her to be unfazed by this. He's like, I'm fine, thanks. I really appreciate you just standing there silently. It was on point. Like, with their characterization, their relationship, I can't wait to see more of it. Another one of my favorite parts was when Luke says, yeah, Annabeth has a plan to, like, Chris, as Chris himself looks suspicious about it. Luke's like, Percy will deal with it, whatever, like, comes his way. Then it, like, cuts to Percy, literally flossing as he's, like, overlooking the hillside towards the landscapes in the distance. He's, like, petting a lizard and, like, peeing in the middle of Capture the Flag with no care in the world. He's so unfazed, so confused about this world. It was so Percy of him. But it also just, like, kind of felt like a Gen Z moment. I don't know. It was really hilarious. Right on point with Percy as a character. It was so funny. <laughs> um, the next one was the fight between Clarice, her siblings, and Percy. So, like, during Capture the Flag. I absolutely loved this. From the moment that Clarice stepped foot in front of the camera at the beginning of the episode, I loved every single second that she was on screen. Dior did and continues to do an amazing job bringing Clarice to life in her own way. This main fight that we see between Clarice, her siblings, and then versus Percy was one of my favorite fight scenes so far. I know we haven't really seen much, but I loved the way that like the music, the setting, and all the characters each took on their own role within it and throughout this said scene. The constant action between all four characters and even the way that we see Percy in full-on battle for the first time pretty much with other people and seeing how his quick wit really comes to his advantage at this point uh was really cool i know we didn't really get to see a lot of percy's training with his like sword play and whatnot uh but it really sets up the way that he is a great swordsman although i do just on another note i do kind of wish that they had included a sword scene with luke only because as the story continues and what we see in the future books and, you know, like what Luke has taught him and his voice that like sometimes will come into Percy's head during these kinds of situations, I do kind of wish that the, we got a little bit of tidbit, like background information on this. But it's alright. I know there's a lot more information to cover than just swordplay and we can't just focus on that. So I understand the way that they're going. Um, but... I, I do kind of wish that they had included that little tidbit. Going back to the very beginning of the battle scene, the way that Clarice responds to Percy's initial sentence of him saying, flag's not here, and her saying, glory's fine, revenge is more fun. So iconic for her character, hands down, probably one of my favorite lines in the show so far. So good. Okay, my next favorite scene, the claiming scene. Oh my goodness, this personally was a lot better than I expected it to be. Like, the freaking music, Annabeth appearing and just saying, not bad, hero, as Percy gets all, like, mad about her, like, just standing there and not helping him, and then helping him up, and then automatically just pushing him into the water. It was the best. Like, the way that all his, like, wounds started healing, and they just kind of looked at each other, and Annabeth's like, oh, your dad's calling. It was the best. I loved every second of it. It was also, like, so them- and then the wide shot that we get of it as he's like looking up at the sign above him and Annabeth is looking at him in the water. Oh, it's so good. It's just the two of them. 
it's like intimate but not intimate at the same time because everybody else is there it was it was so cool to watch I absolutely loved it and then my final favorite moment of this um episode was during the argument between Dionysus and Percy during the final moments of the episode Dionysus is saying that he has to do this quest for his dad and the world hangs in the balance of his decision Dionysus says that he is a son of Poseidon and Percy immediately retorts with I am the son of Sally Jackson which was absolutely beautiful I loved it there was this there was something about this that made Percy so relatable in a sense because he's not used to his father's world and just hearing him say that from the very beginning because I know we get a little bit of it like in the books but hearing him say it so prominently so just determined to get his mom back even if he doesn't even know it yet it was just it was a beautiful scene I absolutely loved it it was the tension the um just everything about it it was so good okay so personally I didn't catch many easter eggs in this episode there may be a lot more than what I am seeing so if you do if you did spot any that I didn't mention please 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 let me know I would love to search them out Okay, the first one that I didn't even notice until Arian like said something in an interview or like one of the rewatch parties that they did was while we were watching the episode, there is like a minotaur in a trident keychain above Percy's head when he's in the Hermes cabin. Like when he first walks into the Hermes cabin, then like walks over to his backpack and makeshift bed, there are these symbols of the minotaur and trident that can be seen behind where Percy is standing and then he like crouches down and you can see it a little better but I thought that was so cool I didn't even notice it the first time then there's also the bathroom scene where the toilets explode therefore hinting that again Percy is a son of Poseidon the water is like actually being like seen quote-unquote manipulated this time uh as Percy is turned away from it but we see a little bit more of it because we didn't really see much in the first like manipulation or you know sign that he was the son of Poseidon. My final one it's not really an easter egg it's more like a comparison that I found when I was watching but when Annabeth fixes his strap in Capture the Flag they're just standing there after Percy had said something to Annabeth and Annabeth just turns towards him looks him up and down is silent for a little bit she like looks like she's gonna say something and then she like notices that the strap is not all the way like in and immediately goes to fix it like the comparison i'm drawing is the one in the battle of the labyrinth where they're on the same team for a game and annabeth immediately says your armor's crooked and goes to fix his armor for him it was such a first moment and a little bit of like a battle of the labyrinth shout out i loved it overall i absolutely loved this episode I have a feeling I will be saying that a lot as the episodes continue to come out. The pacing, again, was very fast in this one, but I do understand the reasoning behind that. There is, again, a ton of information to get through, so it just makes sense. I do believe that now that we are leaving for the quest, that the pacing will slow, but yeah, such a great episode. Thank you all for listening today. You can follow me at Riptide Rewind Pod on Instagram for updates and any other info related to Percy Jackson and this podcast. I am a baby podcast, so if you enjoyed, please do share with friends and family. Thanks again, and see you guys later. Bye!